for women engineers, I, I think it has to start from young. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed when I was growing up was the, if you watch a lot of uh, children's TV show back in our time, they, they are very gendered. Like, uh, like spinning toys are only for boys. Mecca and cars are only for boys. So about like the female, the uh, the girl who really likes uh, car and wants to be an F1 driver, like we shouldn't be uh, assigning genders to toys. Uh, that, that's one of the things. Like ch- children should be free to do any kind of activity that they are interested in. Uh, I, think, I think one of the things that I heard when I was growing up was, uh, actually, why, why you like video games so much? Or why do you like computers so much? It's very tomboy. How are you going to get a boyfriend? Like, you know, you know, all the guys will think you're not cute. <laughs> like, I, 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 good thing I didn't care, <laughs> so I just did it anyway. I, I just do, did my own thing anyway. But but there, there there's a lot of women who care about these kind of comments. So um, I I think that's what turned some women off in like pursuing uh even though we are really good at science or really good at engineering that that what turned people off from like being perceived as a nerd by by like stop being interested in like nerdy topics yeah so so that's i think i think that's where we can start like as a uh, like parenting culture or maybe as a society like stop telling uh gen like each gender what they can and what they cannot do i, I think how do we get more women entrepreneurs is just that uh, maybe we just need more role model we need more success stories to to um help uh inspire uh more women to to be an entrepreneur welcome to the MHV Podcast. We speak with leading founders, VCs, and operators on their journey in Southeast Asia. Learn more at www.monkshill.com. Hey, Shiling. Really excited to have you on the MHV Podcast. Uh, you are a founder who is really building out something special in the UI space, uh, and you have an amazing story that I'm excited to share. Uh, could you share a little bit about yourself? Uh, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Um, well, I am a software engineer. I founded UiLations. I'm the CEO of UiLations. And basically, what we are very focused uh, on is uh, user interface test automation. And it's something that uh, I'm very passionate about after I started working as a software engineer and finding out how difficult it is to make good software. Building good software is really hard. <laughs> Amazing. And there's such an, been a lot of amazing customer testimonials and a lot of love for your product. Uh, and of course, you're making it much, much easier as well, which is everybody's dream. Uh, but before we get and talk about the amazing company itself, love to hear about you early on. So they say, you know, are engineers, do they start as kids or is it something that it happens to them over time? Were you always, you know, destined for to be an engineer? When, when I was growing up, I feel like if you asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I, I would have two answers. One is I want to be a like Indiana Jones. I want to uh, swim around in a tomb. But I also want to wear a lab coat like Inspector Gadget. So so I think it was, uh, I had this like sense of curiosity and I, I really liked uh, playing with like, I, I, well, Lego was one of my favorite toys. It, yeah, so, so I spent a lot of time playing Lego. And I think maybe that's where it sort of... Uh, build my interest in sort of uh, putting things together and uh, seeing like just putting things together is a lot of fun for me and, and I think when things were broken in school like if a friend broke a mechanical pencil I'm always like the go-to fixer <laughs> I'm the fix-it Felix of the classroom 
<laughs> well, I mean, since you're a founder and engineer, I guess you are Indiana Jones and a research uh, person at the same point now. So you managed to fulfill both uh, dreams. Yeah, I just need a lab coat or a white lab coat. Okay, you'll be complete. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so tell us more about that. So you had Legos and going on and obviously lots of people are problem solvers and, you know, kind of... Um, doing like little problems and mechanical. I mean, even as a kid, I was also playing with Legos a lot. Um, and in fact, I also did a little bit of, you know, Micro Mouse and Lego Mindstorm Robotics as well. Is this that, and I even went to the computer club, for example, is this that I never ended up becoming a computer engineer, always ended up being on the soft side of it. Uh, whereas on your side, you actually decided to become much more of an engineer, right, and deepen uh, that practice of it. So what do you think was that part of it? Why did you decide to do that? I think a large part of it was because uh, of my brother. So he's, my brother is six years older than me and uh, he started out with both of us playing video games together. So I, I think I was like a lot of uh, kids my age, uh, but I've said a lot of kids my age that played video games for boys. And I was like, hmm, I'm going to grow up and be a video game developer. That sounds like a great idea. And then um, I, I started with uh, doing things that you shouldn't be doing to to access video games when you don't have money. <laughs> okay, we are like running tracking video games on LimeWire or Kazaa. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I, I figured out how to uh, automate my my computer so that I can uh, like sort of cheat at video games with mods and, and um, like automatic clickers, for example. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. wait automated clickers on single player games or multiplayer games? Oh, that was that was new pets. <laughs> oh, okay, so new multiplayer games. Okay, that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so were you like, like a billionaire on your pets? If oh yeah, like, I'm a billionaire. Oh, <laughs> I was a peasant then because I was not even a billionaire. I was just going like a normal human person <laughs> going to. Yeah. In fact, I learned HTML from new pets because I wanted to tell everyone about my really cute cat-based new, new pet. So I want to write a story about my new pet and they had this feature called pet, you know, pet page. And that's where I learned uh, HTML and I tried to make my scroll bar glitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's really amazing. I think the maximum of hacking I did was I think uh, I would put a, I think I mapped my fire key on MapleStory to control uh, on my keyboard and then I put like a CD case on the keyboard so that I could it could just press you know shoot while I'm you know got lazy holding the control key uh, yeah so, yeah so that's amazing um so there you are kind of exploring that hacking dynamic and obviously your brother played a big part of it was it like because my sister and I we also like you know game together and what was interesting was that it was kind of like not the world's happiest, friendliest place. You know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I was always a bit. I mean, my sister was better than me at you know first-person shooters, right? Like Counter Strike and everything. So she always got into all the clans, right? The MP5 gen, the SOG clan. And then I was like nowhere as good as her. But also, she got all the harassment on all the clan on the servers, right? <laughs> on Counter Strike, because <laughs> everyone's like running around going A slash S slash L, right? You know, I don't know. Uh, for those who don't know, it means like age slash sex slash location. And as children, we will be like noobs and answer that honestly and, and <laughs> get harassed. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember, I think I was a kid, I, I borrowed my brother's account to play a real-time strategy game. And then people were asking me, how are you? I'm like, I'm nine years old. 
<laughs> you are actually pretty nice to me. Uh, surprising. Oh, maybe maybe I, I'm I'm pretty dense. So I, all all the insults just flew past my head because I didn't understand. <laughs> maybe that time was a PR place. Um, so there you are. You know, obviously, you know, you're just learning all these things. Uh, and what was it like? Because you started talking about how you were learning and went on to learn engineering, etc. What was that like? Yeah, so I think at some point when I was in, uh, after we finished O-Levels and uh, everyone was thinking which JC they want to go to, which poly they want to go to. And uh, for me, for some reason, I was very fixated on any of the JCs that had computer science. Um, yeah, so so every single choice that I put on uh, my JC uh, list, uh, uh, list of schools that I want, want for, for my JC, all of them had a computer science course. Yeah, so I didn't care which one as long as I got got into one and I wanted really wanted to learn computer science. Uh I, I think I, I I probably was I had this kind of mentality like if uh I'm just gonna try all the subjects and find out what, what I really like, uh what what would, would uh, really stick to me. And I never tried computer science before. Um but I, I know I'm interested in it, so let's just give that a try. And uh it turns out I really like it, it's super fun. Uh, I, I think the first time I wrote a computer program, I was like, whoa, this is like magic. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you ever play role-playing games with me, I always choose the wizard. Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> now we know what's the correlation. <laughs> Equals causation. There we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So you're a wizard. You're learning um, coding. Um, and then you actually chose to double down on it, right? At a university level as well. Um, so what was that like? So I went to uh, Singapore Management University and uh, I took information systems. And uh, it was actually pretty refreshing uh, as compared to junior college. Junior college, you're just sitting in a lecture hall, listening to the teacher uh, tell you what to do. It's just a very one-way street of uh, teaching. But uh, SME was interesting because it was... Um, uh, it was super interactive. Uh, even if the teacher is giving a seminar, uh, they they will force uh forcefully ask uh students to answer questions, uh as they are doing the seminar. It's it's a much smaller classroom as well as about uh as compared to like a hundred people lecture hall, it's like a 40, 40 person uh classroom, and uh and what one thing that is unique about uh SMU is uh the information system course is that is there's a lot of projects we are we are infamously known and now they have changed the name of the school but back then it was called School of Information System it's now called School of Computing Computer Science and Information System I think SCIS but back then when I was still in school is also SIS that also stood for um School of Insufficient Sleep because we had so many projects and the the passing requirements for the projects were so high that uh, you always see information student, system students uh, like staying back in school even sleeping in school um, like some, some of us went to the extent of bringing uh, sleeping tents to school <laughs> so that we could finish the projects uh, and then it's always hilarious when some of the projects they, they got stuck with bug and then they're up all night and <laughs> sometimes you laugh at them but sometimes you also go and help them so so well, I, I really enjoyed my time at SMU and um, I did very well so um, and, and the professors also uh, really liked to ask me to be their teaching assistant so I was also teaching assistant for four of the different uh, modules uh, in, in school. And you know during this time uh you know, you've been learning a lot, right, about engineering. Were there any particular themes about engineering that you particularly liked? 
or any projects that resonated with you? I think one of the things that uh, I came to learn and appreciate about uh, st- studying at SMU was also learning how important uh, the understanding business uh, is to, to uh, engineering. Um, I, I think that's where being in SMU, they are very good at telling you, uh, making you be focused on acquiring this business sense of why are we building an IT system? Why is the, uh, the, the outcomes that we're supposed to get with an IT system? And now that I'm running my own company and uh, managing my own engineers, you can see that um, there, there are uh, engineers who are able to, we have a like very long roadmap. There's always uh, like an infinite uh, to-do list, but uh, the really good, uh, engineers know exactly which features to prioritize and how to um what what the business really needs and and um they will also give a feedback and say hey boss I don't think uh this is uh what the users will do um our our users will actually um try to use it this way instead yeah so so actually that is the soft aspect of uh, engineering that that I came to appreciate more and more yeah I, there's one particular course that I took uh, which is called uh, interactive design and prototyping which uh, in that course I had to do a lot of like uh, paper drawings of like low fidelity um, prototypes and show it to people and uh, you, it, there's actually no coding involved in this this particular course and when I graduated I thought oh, that's kind of like the what's the most useless course that I ever do like anyone can draw right I could just ask like the business team to do the drawings right and it turns out when I uh, first joined uh, my um, after graduating the first company I joined the boss gave me a very abstract problem to uh, a feature to build uh, a, a feature with very abstract requirements to build so I really didn't know what he wanted so I didn't I don't want to write a line of code because it was so vague so I decided to start drawing prototypes and then I showed the prototypes to him and say is this what you want do you want this uh, this to is this what you want the users to be doing like from this screen to this screen to this screen this is what you mean right and then he will say yes no yes no and actually, he give me a feedback and say, Shiling, you're the only engineer that did this. And that was amazing. I was like, wow, okay. That's interesting. So you actually were already thinking about that flow from, you know, even that time, right? And there you are, and you chose to actually decide to continue being an engineer upon graduation. So why that? Because a lot of folks from SMU, right, um, they choose, you know, even though they did an engineering major, they choose to go into business, for example, more that side versus the engineering side. So why? I think I really like programming and I, I just really, really wanted to still do uh, hands-on programming. So I didn't really want to always be uh, talking to a stakeholder, understanding requirements and then talking to engineers and telling what the stakeholders want. I, I think maybe it's also because I'm an introvert introvert and then talking to people all day I know that's my job now as a CEO I have learned to accept that and embrace it but in the past when I first graduated I was like uh, very very introverted uh, I, I I just want to code and uh, not talk to people all day like best if uh, only once a day like one at most one meeting a day <laughs> yeah. now I'm okay with it though <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, I'm glad you're one meeting today, at least, right? You know, what was it that you learned upon your first job, right? Because there you are, a lot of people, they have that transition, right? From, you know, kind of like the academic side of engineering towards more of that practical job training uh, and hands-on experience. So what did you learn from that experience personally? 
I think what I learned from that experience is uh process. What well, one thing is process is uh really really important, and that's something that that so the first job that I joined is uh advertising technology startup. There were already uh thirty employees in the company's uh company when I joined. But I I think the problem that I start to realize after one year into the job is that the startup still ran a little bit cowboy style. <laughs> so there's not a lot of process in place. There was uh the the QA process. Was really informal and um, like uh, we we as engineers, uh, it wasn't the managers telling us like what the process is. Is us figuring out how it should be and uh, just just uh, uh and some some it gets got really really confusing when they change people to other teams and the other team have their own uh cowboy style of project management. So the the lack of process of uh, uh it affects the product quality. Uh, one thing. Because um that is wasn't a review process um and then the second thing was that it also affected morale because the schedule started sleeping and when the schedule was sleeping the the manager start to find people to blame like why is the uh, feature not done and yeah so 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 that really had a negative impact on um morale so I think that's sort of the learnings I took into uh building up UIlicious when I started speaking with my co-founder CTO uh, the First thing that we well, one of the earliest things that we talk about was uh, as we scale from like five engineers to ten engineers or maybe like even two engineers, me and Eugene alone uh, coding in the early days. Like, what what is the process? And uh, we had like uh, some hard rules about when uh, when can deployment uh, be done and when can it not be done. Uh, we are very clear about like no no weekend deployments, no Friday deployments because we don't want surprises. Uh, we had too many firefighting in our havoc cowboy days, which we want to stop at Yoelicious and also. I I think we want to um also be the um what's that the. At least, at least in the Singapore developer community, we want to be a role model for other Singapore uh, engineering co- uh, teams of how, what's the good way to do engineering to build good software products. Yeah, well, that's actually a nice heroic uh, Indiana Jones uh, <laughs> in a mission, I guess, uh, <laughs> because it's tough, right, to be a good role model uh, for this because you know engineering is tough, and to do that in the startup environment especially for a new product in a new category can be tough. And on that note, obviously, you know, you met your co-founder and t- talking about your strategy and thinking behind it. So talk us more about why you decided to, you know, leave your company and join Entrepreneur First. So what was your thinking behind that? Was it because you, you wanted to be a founder at that point in time? Was it because you wanted to explore something? What was the rationale for why you were exploring? Uh, to be honest, I... Never thought about being an entrepreneur, but I think my parents were doing subliminal messaging because uh, my mom would sneakily put business uh, books into my bookshelf and say, girl, I think you should read this as a smart kid, uh, a rich kid, poor kid. <laughs> but then I, and then I never gave, gave it much thought until um, it was like maybe one firefighting night too many that I thought why am I working so hard for someone else's money I was like ranting to my mom and my mom was like exactly <laughs> and, 
And uh, I, I think it's just uh, maybe the stars align. I had this random email from the director of EFSG at that point of time. Uh, he was, They were just setting up the first cohort in in uh, Singapore. And then he reached out to me to uh, have coffee. And it was actually a really um, random email. And I didn't know why I said yes. I guess I was really curious. Like I'm as curious as a cat. <laughs> I'm really, really curious. <laughs> So I, I went went uh, for a coffee talk with him and then uh like got convinced to join uh EF and try I, I think I think another part of it was because I, I was young, so back then was like I was twenty five and uh not not married, no kids. Um uh so like the risk for me is low to to quit my job and uh start something new. Um so I thought like I just try. Why not? Just uh, and if it doesn't work out, uh, software engineers are super employable, so I'm not worried about finding another job. Yeah, that's a nice way actually to think about risk, right? Which is that you have low downside risk because you know you can get another job, but there's also high upside in terms of exploration and you know just learning about the space, right? And curiosity scratching. Uh, so there you are. And what was it like? Because you know, a lot of people go through accelerators uh, and programs and they also start going through the co-founder matching process. Uh, mm-hmm. And also you're going through the uh, product market fit process as well, right? So talk us through a little bit about what's it like to, not necessarily within Entrepreneur First, but overall the whole process of uh, finding a co-founder and finding the right idea that worked for both of you. Yeah, I think um, me and Eugene, uh, we are quite different people. So um, when, when we first joined EF, they had us uh, write our idea in the idea board. And I didn't really have much of her, a lot of ideas that I wanted to try. I know uh, what sort of things that are like, like uh, education or uh, environmental things. So so um, that's what I'm interested in. But then there's this one very specific problem I wanted to solve first, which was I had a concept in my mind of how to fix user interface test automation, which you can talk about later on. And those are the three things I put on my on my idea board, like all things, things that I'm interested in board. And then Eugene has like 20 things on his list. A lot of very specific things. It's very... Um, if you speak to him on any day and bring up any topic, he will call, he will tell you a lot of ideas about uh, he has for that one particular topic. But anyway, it just so happened that on his idea board, he also has this one particular thing that he's super annoyed by, which is user interface test testing. Like we said, hey, you want to try working out uh, on on this together? So I shared with him like what I was thinking of like um a prototype. Uh, might look like and then he thought it was like yeah I think that should be the way how it should be done let's do it and uh, I, I, I EF has the founder matching thing but I, I, I was lucky on the first try that this stuck uh, for five years and ongoing <laughs> yeah. yeah and then I think the next part of it was um uh, we we went to EF to present our idea to Emery, one of the directors, and it is fantastic. Uh, that's great. Now now I know you guys like to code because you guys are engineers, but don't don't put your butt on the chair. I don't want to see you in the office. You've got to go out and get five customers. Just really fierce about that. It was, uh, and I protested because I say, but Emery, we don't have a prototype. How do we go and get customers? You sell them your idea. <laughs> I was like, huh? How do you sell ideas? So, so what we did, uh, I, I, I think that's something that um, people 
we were quite interested uh, to to hear how do we get our first uh, customers first. What we did was uh, we wanted to test whether there was actually uh, what the problem that we face. Is it a problem that a lot of software teams are also facing? So we created a survey to us and then uh, send it out to uh, 40 of our friends to ask them down uh, to meet us either face-to-face or virtually to uh, answer some questions about what are the, um, how do they test uh, in their company? Is it manually, automatically? Is it, uh, who, who is involved in testing? How long does it take to test? Do they find it a process that needs to be improved? And uh, last question, the most important one, if we have a prototype, do you, what, are you interested to be a pilot or a beta pilot? <laughs> we actually got like 30 yeses out of the 40 people who responded. And from there, the 30 yeses, we actually got them to beat us and we uh, promised them that we will build a prototype in two months, uh, but they, um, they need to pay us five hundred dollars for the for the pilot. Yeah, it was very quite cheap actually. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, from from there we got eleven yeses. And it was like wow, nice. <laughs> yeah, so we first got got our first uh, five yeses. We ran to Emma, and Emma we got our first five yeses to uh, five uh, people sign their their decision uh, makers sign and said yes to paying us five hundred dollars for a prototype. Uh, we are going to do code now. Said, and she was like, yes, go do code. <laughs> And like we pumped it out in in two weeks, and uh, I, yeah, I mean, the reason why we rushed to to pump it out in two weeks was because in two weeks from the day where we got our five contract was uh, we were going to attend JS conference. We 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 uh, Eugene actually had uh was a speaker there uh and then I snuck in all right I, I bought a ticket I didn't I didn't sneak in illegally I bought a real ticket but then I I wrote a pro they they have this lightning talk session so I wrote a proposal I want to talk about user interface interface test automation and demo my my cool little neat little thing and that's where uh things started to get more exciting and people were actually excited we we, we uh some of the sign contracts were from there um later on. And then I guess from then on, we uh, after getting a signed contract, we were very uh, committed to to it. Like that, it suddenly became very serious. Like it wasn't like a fun game. Like we actually want to deliver on this, and uh, we got feedback after the prototype uh, that uh, the the concept was quite refreshing and it was actually actually useful. It helped them with productivity and it helped them to catch bugs um, much early on and improve their. Um, product quality so and and they will continue paying us so so that's where we that's how we end up uh, doing this for five years <laughs> and so obviously the benefits are clear like you mentioned it's easier it's more convenient you catch more bugs but and obviously it's a problem because both you and your co-founder were irritated by the problem and have to write it down as one of the top five things just for a layman who didn't do Lego, didn't do uh, you know coding and engineering, why is it such a pain in the rear? Yeah, so the thing is, when we use um, web applications or let's say even mobile application, when we use software these days, we don't use just use it on uh, Chrome on IE like twenty years ago anymore. We use it on Firefox, we use it on Chrome, we use it on Safari. And all, all the other small random browsers that, that uh, are on the market as well. And then there's also the mobile devices, which um, e- e- even if you have Chrome uh, and Safari on the mobile device, it's not the same as the desktop-based version one. But plus, there's also different resolutions that you need to test. So there are different... Um, 
uh, for for one screen, it needs to be, uh, be able to display correctly on the uh, desktop resolution and the mobile resolution. So meaning every time we build a single page, we need to test it uh, across the browsers, across the different uh, resolution, the different devices. And sometimes you get very funny quirks like this bug only happens on a Safari mobile device, maybe at exactly at 10, uh, version 10.13. And we need to somehow go and procure the, 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 the device for it, which is another difficult uh, pain, and then to go test it and try to debug it. So it's it's a huge, huge pain to make sure that uh, the software that you're building works across all browsers. So that's why if you spoke to most engineers, uh, or, or that's why actually you you see a lot of companies they start they they sometimes put a banner that says we don't support Firefox. In fact, I think this this uh, app when I oh, this Fire Riverside FM app that we are using right now for the podcast, I tried uh, my default browser is Firefox. I open it on Firefox and say no, we only do Chrome, and then the state of um, uh, browsers right now is that we are, we are on this mono mono culture of uh, Chrome browsers uh, simply because testing uh, across browsers is so difficult yeah so I wonder to automate it we, we had humans automating it but at some point as you add uh, more features uh, it's uh, the, the the number of things that you need to test just grows exponentially because there's more permutation of user actions to do so it's it's definitely not scalable uh, to do it uh, with with humans alone and we felt that we need to get um, uh, we need to make it automated and that there were actually ways to automate uh browser testing, uh, the technology existed 12 years ago. So, so, so 12 years, uh, I think more than 12 years ago, actually, um, Selenium was created uh, for the purpose of uh, automating browsers. Uh, however, in order to use Selenium, you need to be an engineer. And if you speak to most most um, engineering managers, they will tell you, hi, you want me to put an engineer on software testing uh, to write, write automation, test automation script? Uh? I don't even have enough engineers to write, uh, do features. <laughs> I, I cannot speak spare any engineers to, to write scripts for you. I think I think you better hire some interns to, to go and press buttons and, and check for us. Uh. Uh, so so we are a lot of companies are stuck in this state of like uh, they cannot automate because they don't have the skills, skilled labor to write the automation. Uh, but uh, manual testing is not scaling and uh, they are not able to and, and so the they they release um, products that are like uh, minimally tested. Uh, so, so and, and then we get a lot of uh, buggy products on the market because of that. So so we wanted to create this this um, UI licious because we wanted to make um, creating this automated test script as as uh, simple as possible. And what we noticed is that if you the designers, the the marketing uh, team, the business stakeholders, they are already writing things like uh, uh, user stories, uh, which is something like I go to this website URL, I fill in uh, username, I fill in password, I click on on uh, sign up, then finally I should be at dashboard. So why can't we make these user stories into a test script? Uh, uh, the, the, the test script itself, why do we actually need to um, have another, need to get an engineer to script the actual, uh, wire up to the actual UI to automate it? So, so we, the, the concept of UI licious is such that you can turn all these user stories that are written in a high, uh, high level, like pseudo English language, and um, just have that run against any kind of UI and it will work and it will tell you whether your UI works or not. Amazing. Uh, I think it's quite clear because what you're basically saying is 
uh, the world sucks because there's so many devices, so many browsers, so many different features, uh, and engineering costs are so expensive that when there is a problem, it's hard to trace down, it's hard to replicate, uh, and it's hard to even identify and fix uh, within a time constraint. Uh, and it's quite amazing that you're able to tackle all of that. And so one interesting thing is that obviously you've been doing all of this in the context of uh, not only being an engineer, but also as learning to become a founder, right? Uh, and I don't think you did that just by reading uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? <laughs> you know? So what did you learn along the way? You know, um, And I know that you've been working closely with Justin Nguyen, uh, you know, one of our partners here as well. Uh, but I'm just kind of curious, what do you, what is it have you been learning along the way uh, as a founder over the years? Uh, over the years, I think I had, uh, besides Justin, uh, I've also worked with um, a, a number of our angel investors who were, were very good strategic advisors. So so um, I, I really didn't know much uh, as a, a first-time founder. I was just jumping into the deep end of the pool and just trying to uh, find my way to to swim up to the surface. So so like uh, I, I think I, I, I had this naive thought that, oh, if the product is great, people will talk about it. And that's like my marketing strategy it's a it's a sucky marketing strategy but uh, uh later on um we uh two years in we registered one of our investors was asking like uh do you guys do marketing he said yeah we we go to conferences and tell people about it like no this uh, like paid marketing I was like what paid marketing digital marketing oh we have yeah we did we put one ad one ad one ad only i said yeah <laughs> what? No, that's not the way to do digital marketing. You should do like twenty ads, collect data, and um uh, optimize. Then repeat every month. Uh, twenty ads, <laughs> collect data, optimize it. What? Okay, I I didn't know that was how it was supposed to be done. And um, it turns out that so so that was like one of the most insightful things that I learned was that uh marketing was actually data science. Um. Yeah, I, I always thought marketing was a creative thing. Like you need to be a artistic, creative, uh, like uh, a poet to be able to um, draw people into your website and convince them to buy your product. But actually, it's a science. Um, there's a lot of science behind it, and I think uh, Justin was was pretty pretty helpful. He's he's also a pretty pretty data oriented person. So that's where um. He helps us to look at the uh what we're working on and uh sort of give us um sort of directions more like more like guiding questions to help us uh on, on things that we may have over overlooked uh yeah uh, that's just my learning point as a as a founder was that that um uh actually a lot of things that seems like art was actually there's a lot of science to it. Like even pricing is a science, and uh, we we experimented with pricing a lot as well. So so in in the past we we were priced super cheap, and then uh we realized that that, that wasn't um wasn't healthy for us because we we were getting uh users that were were not like the serious business users until we raised the prices, and we found uh, a lot of serious businesses would still still pay for it anyway, and um we are less stressed by um the volume of customer support that we, tickets that we had to handle. So yeah. That's, that's another learning point that pricing is also a science. One interesting thing uh, that we were discussing uh, in our earlier conversations over time is that your reflection that you feel like you're one of the few 
female founders and engineers uh, there, right? And then you're in this awkward position of being a leader, right? <laughs> and representative uh, and role model to other folks in the space. So how do you feel about that? And why do you think that's happening? Well, I, I feel quite always, to, to be honest, when um when we were at EF and we were, between me and Eugene at the early days, we were just, uh, we, we didn't have uh, official titles like CEO and CTO until we had to do demo day. And then we actually then had to figure out who's going to be CEO and who's going to be CTO because the CEO has to do a demo day. And I, I was an introvert. So I was like, no, 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 no. I, I don't want to be a, a CEO. And then uh, the, the the winning argument for him was like, surely there's not enough female uh, CEO and software engineers. You need to you need to be representative. <laughs> and then like like he knew how to push my buttons because I've always been talking about how there's not enough growing up. There's uh, I feel quite lonely that there's no uh, less lesser and lesser women in my class uh, software engineering classes. And uh, it, it, even joining the EF cohort, there were only four women, and we were the only team that uh, had consisted of one female founder uh, in in that uh, uh, first cohort. So so yeah. <laughs> that, that, that cemented my decision. Okay, I'm going to be CEO and I, I know it's uncomfortable, but I'm just going to go face it. And uh, hopefully that inspires more people. And it actually did. I, I was quite surprised when, um, so so subsequently, um, uh, I, I got invited to Coding Girls, one of the panels. And then many months later, uh, two women came up to me um, and, and told me that they, they were actually inspired by what I was doing. Uh, one of them actually founded her own company, like, like had the courage to found her own uh, company after seeing uh, that I was um, being successful at, at uh, well, I, I can do it, basically. Women can do it, <laughs> yeah. So I was quite proud of myself. Amazing. That's awesome. And I'm glad that you did that because, you know, it's uh, something that we need more of, right? Um, and what do you think that people could do more to be more supportive of the environment for, at one level, obviously, women engineers and another level, so uh, women founders as well? Mm, I think for women engineers, I, I think it has to start from young. Uh, well, one of the things that I noticed when I was growing up was the if you watch a lot of uh children's TV show back in our time, they, they are very gendered. Like uh, like spinning toys are only for boys. Uh, Mecca and cars are only for boys. So about like the female, the uh, the girl who really likes uh car and wants to be an F one driver, like. It will feel very out of place. So so I, I think play time should be or anything um, like Asa has to start from young. Like, I think I think we shouldn't be uh, assigning genders to toys. Uh, that, that's one of the things. Like ch children should be free to do any kind of activity that they are interested in. Uh, I think I think one of the things that I heard when I was growing up was uh, actually why why you like video games so much or why do you like computers so much? It's very tomboy. How are you going to get a boyfriend? Like, you know, yeah, all the guys will think you're not cute. <laughs> Like, I, 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 good thing I didn't care, <laughs> so I just did it anyway. I, I just do, did my own thing anyway. But but there, there there's a lot of women who care about these kind of comments. So um, I I think that's what turned some women off in like pursuing uh even though we're really good at science or really good at engineering that that what turned people off from like being perceived as a nerd by by like stop being interested 
in like nerdy topics yeah so so that's I, I think i think that's where we can start like as a uh, like parenting culture or maybe as a society like stop telling uh gen like each gender what they can and what they cannot do then how do we I, I think how do we get more women entrepreneurs is just that uh, maybe we just need more role model we need more success stories to to um help uh inspire uh more women to to be an entrepreneur but then there's also the reality that there's a lot of women who are um, like still burdened by um, duties at home so that's that's one of the things that is still a, a big big challenge um, for for women uh, it's very hard problem to solve there's no there's no simple solution to that we just need to I, I think there's something that over time uh, think things will change lah. yeah then yeah i think i think um so, uh, so far i as a as an entrepreneur I, I did find that i received quite a lot of uh, support from from the entrepreneur com- community uh and th- i i think one of the things maybe this is where women need to help themselves also um that's why i tell my uh so, so i also volunteer as in junior deaf singapore uh, there are and, and one of the things I noticed there's a difference between uh, my female mentees and my male mentees is that my male mentees ask me for help all the time like they, they always come to me for help whereas female mentees are very very shy to ask for help and I, I don't know how to help you if I, I don't know you need help <laughs> you see so so that's one thing about maybe uh, female entrepreneurs they also need to learn to ask for help or uh, help themselves and find their people that are willing to help them. I, I think there are people that are willing to help them. They just don't know it. So perhaps like setting up mentorship circles uh, could also be something that would help uh, women entrepreneurs. Wow, that's a lot of good advice, both on the structural level and the personal level. Uh, on that note, you know, you yourself were one of those people, right? Uh, 10 years ago, right? Still uh, learning about what you meant to be an engineer and also evolving yourself, uh, not just as an engineer in terms of skill set, yet also in terms of whether to choose to become working for someone else to working for yourself. And also thirdly, also, you know, moving from an introvert to choosing to have more than one meeting a day, right? And so on that note, if you could travel back in time 10 years ago, right, um, that would be back in 2011, right? (laughs) So what advice would you give yourself back then if you had a time travel machine? Mm, I think uh I saw I had a lot of imposter syndrome when I was uh like like in my early days of being a startup entrepreneur. Like I keep worrying that I'm not enough, uh that, that I don't know enough. And like like you need to be a, a much older person to, to be a very wise person to to start a, a entrepreneur. And that was like that was like the first myth uh that I I want to clear to my my younger self. It's like mm, you you don't need to know that much. Like uh, actually a lot of things about uh starting a business uh you cannot learn. Uh, the only way to gain experience is to actually just just go go in and do it. There's there's no way you can uh, work in a company, a startup company. Even if you're working in a startup company, you never get the experience of, uh, get the the experience you need to start your own own company. You get some experience, but then not the uh, like uh the the only real way to to gain experience is to actually start the start the. Uh, company yourself so don't worry about not having enough experience you'll never have enough <laughs> that's the truth 
Yeah, I, I think the second one uh, about the the second piece of uh, why why I had imposter syndrome was uh was I had this misconception uh, again back to not enough role models that that all CEOs because I only ever seen Steve Jobs and all the other like uh male uh technology CEOs so I thought like oh uh, to be a CEO you must be a, a tall tall um. Uh, white guy in a business suit or, or at least a black black shirt and uh, blue jeans uh, Steve Jobs <laughs> so so I was like oh I, I'm just a I, so I, I keep thinking like okay nobody's gonna take me seriously because I'm a woman but actually actually people do yeah so so don't worry so much <laughs> wow I love that I love that frank truth uh, to yourself uh, and honestly I think just the frank truth to all of us today so uh, on that note, I'd love to like summarize the three big themes that I got from this conversation. Uh, the first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing about uh, your time growing up as an engineer, right? Um, who happens to be a child, happens to be a teenager, uh, gaming, <laughs> you know, with your brother and uh, hacking your pets. Uh, and now we know who the billionaires with the income inequality on your pets were. And then going on to obviously... Uh, learn uh, computer science at you know junior college and uh, university and actually learning how to put that together in terms of your early career as well from a skills perspective uh, and there was just a tremendous amount of insight actually in terms of that overall evolution uh, the second is thank you so much for sharing your overall perspective as a founder right what it means to transition from an engineer to becoming a founder and CEO uh, and what that meant as uh, the product market fit in terms of like it being a problem. And then you also explaining why it was such a pain in the rear for so many folks and why it was a pain for yourself and your co-founder and how you two both matched. And also actually why you chose to step up in the role together and how you both worked together and how you both eventually went out to find your first customers before coding and then eventually coding and then eventually finding many more sales contracts uh, by hacking your way into the conference and uh, all of those learnings about how some things are less of an art and more of a science, actually. So it's actually a lot of learnings there about that uh, maturation as a founder and CEO. And lastly, actually, I think we got to hear about your reflections uh, in terms of representation from a gender lens, uh, in terms of your own personal learnings about what it meant for you to be able to have this uh, path yourself and also what it means how you would encourage people to raise their kids uh, in the future, uh, as well as how you would encourage people to be more structural, right, in terms of uh, either helping other women. Uh, and also, I think, your reflections on how women should also help themselves in terms of peer mentorship and support as well uh, to help them uh, to get to the next level as well. Uh, so I think it's amazing that you are a role model, and as I said, I do think you are indeed, uh, actually did make your dream come true in childhood, right? Like you are uh, both a lab coat engineer, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, with, you know, no yeah. white, white lab coat. Uh, you can always wear the black turtleneck now. Uh, if oh, you yeah. want. Uh, and uh, you also uh, are Indiana Jones, right? As a founder and CEO. So I think yeah. uh, dreams do come true. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for your time and uh, for having me here. I think it was a fun conversation for me as well. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the MHV podcast, please share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Go to www.monkshill.com for more founders' journeys, company building advice, 
and insights into regional tech trends.